If you have your Bibles, join me in turning to the book of James, chapter 3. James, chapter 3, verses 13 and following. As you're turning there, be reminded that we are continuing our series of sermons called Devoted, where we are addressing marriage and family issues. Here on the front end of this series of messages, attempting to address some of the sins that have a tendency to beset the unity and togetherness of marriages and families. Just to sort of get the wheels to turning a bit, I would challenge you to think for just a moment about your most recent marital squabble or conflicts within your family, maybe even your squabbles from this morning. One of the great benefits of being a pastor for the last 18 years is I have not participated in getting my children ready for church. I'm usually gone before most of the house wakes up. I hear only secondhand of the great calamity and disaster that can ensue on a Sunday morning, but I know it happens. Some of you walked in smiling, but that was not the countenance with which you left the house. Think of your most recent marital squabble. Think of your most recent family conflict. What role in the squabble or the conflict did a sense of pride and envy play? The passage we're dealing with this morning is a treatment of pride and envy in a general sense. Every person here, married or single, at every stage of life, young and old and every age in between, struggles with pride and envy. It's, a, it's, it's among the original sins. Did God really say, if you eat of this forbidden fruit, you will be like unto him, having a knowledge of both good and evil? The strong enticement of the serpent was an appeal to pride, to envy, to have what they did not have, to have what someone else had, namely the God who'd created them as they were. These are sins that we have always and will always wrestle against. And so James's treatment here in the general sense is relevant to all, but I think these are especially relevant to the marriage situation and to family situations uh, more specifically. If you'll think about the issues that plague your marriage, the issues that plague your family, they can all sort of come back to pride and or envy. I began to sort of play with the problem of envy back a few months ago, noting I can't remember having heard a sermon on envy. I don't hear people talk about envy. Within the Christian community, we are not publishing books on the sin of envy. There's a book on virtually everything, nothing to my knowledge on the sin of envy, occasionally pride, but I began to look at the scripture and, and consider this envy thing. Now, you may not think this is a huge deal, right? I, I, don't, I don't hear people talking about it. I don't hear it confessed. But I, I just want to remind you, this is the top ten, right? The tenth commandment is thou shalt not covet. So in the foundation of Israel as a nation, God found this to be such a foundational bedrock issue that it was written into the moral code of God's people as a nation covetousness, it's envy, it's jealousy. Those words have some nuance, but they're virtually synonymous. They're virtually interchangeable in the Bible. So although we may not be talking about them, writing books about them, preaching sermons about them, confessing this as sin, 
Apparently, God has a vastly different perspective on the problem of envy. When you begin to look at that in the Bible, in almost every case, with rare exception, you, you find pride coupled together with the sin of envy. That's where envy is born from, out of the pride of heart. I deserve to have that. I want to have that. I, I, I believe I deserve more than that person to have that. And even within marriage, this is sort of the way things work. I suspect if you'll consider deeply your most recent marital or family squabbles, you will find that envy and pride are at the root in some way. So we want to take these on today from the perspective of James 3, 13 through 4 in verse number 6. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Who is wise and has understanding among you? He should show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't brag and deny the truth. Such wisdom doesn't come from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every kind of evil. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and don't have. You murder and covet and can't obtain. You fight in war. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. Adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Or do you think it's without reason the scripture says that the spirit who lives in us yearns jealously, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Who is wise and has understanding among you? Sort of a rhetorical question here that James answers himself. It's asked with some force. It's asked with, with purpose. He follows. He should show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. In other words, if we were to ask who is wise among us, we don't need a show of hands to make that determination. A person's wisdom is demonstrated in their conduct, in their character, in their way of life, the fruitfulness of their life, bearing the fruit of the Spirit is a demonstration of the possession of heavenly wisdom. This is wisdom literature. James is known as the wisdom literature of the New Testament. Like the Proverbs of the Old Testament, James speaks in that kind of proverbial principle type of way. Contrasting here the wisdom of heaven with the wisdom of the world. There are lots of marriages and families conducting their business on the basis of the wisdom of the world and spurning the wisdom of God. There is a stark contrast between the two. If, if you are here and you are among those struggling within your marriage and family, I want to caution you against the wisdom of this world. Do not go to Books A Million to the marriage and family section to buy for yourself 
some instruction manual on how to handle your marriage and your family. It will seep with the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of the world is saying, me, 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 me. The wisdom of the world is rooted in pridefulness and envy. Selfishness is the chief characteristic of the wisdom of this world with regards to marriage and, and family. What do, you, what do you hear most often when marriages fall apart or relationships in general? It always turns my stomach to hear something like, he or she just didn't make me happy. Well, that's not his or her job. Not to mention, that's a fairly narcissistic outlook on the role that marriage and family is to serve within the life of the believer. The wisdom of the world says, me, me, me. Selfishness is the, is the overarching characteristic of the wisdom of this world with regards to marriage and family. Whereas the wisdom of heaven says, through the message of the gospel, we are to esteem others more highly than ourselves. We are to embrace the message of the gospel in such a deep way that that has bearing and influence on the way we live our life in every corner of our life. Who is wise and understanding among us? He should show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. There's something of a distinction that's being made here between knowledge and wisdom. A distinction that I think would serve us well within the English language to revive. In the Bible, it is in some ways that knowledge is about what you know. And this is a little forceful, but, but it strikes at the heart of the distinction, I think. Knowledge is what you know. Wisdom is what you do. There is a certain degree of arrogance that almost always comes with ignorance. You don't know what you don't know. And that's okay as long as you know that there are some things that you don't know. If, if you had suffered through my preaching on marriage and family issues 18 years ago when God called me to serve in my first church, you would have found that I was far more convinced, determined, specific. I had everything figured out in those days. What you come to know over the course of time is that there's a lot more that you don't know than there is that you do know. And what James is pointing out here is that what you know is really of no benefit at all if it doesn't influence what you do. In the Bible, knowledge is what you know. Wisdom is what you do. When Brandy and I were getting married, we, we, we have grown fond over the years of saying that our families put the fun in dysfunction. So we were surrounded by all sorts of dysfunction. Both sides of our family racked by divorce, divorce after divorce after divorce. We learned a great deal of what we learned about marriage and family from bad examples, which can be beneficial, as opposed to the good examples that many of you had such great access to in godly moms and dads and, and grandparents. We just did not have the benefit of these sterling examples of marriage and family and how things were to function. We were scared to death. I was scared to death. I was so nervous about getting married, already called the ministry, fearful of doing something that would disqualify me from the work to which God had called me. I thought I was just nervous on the wedding weekend. No, I had the stomach flu. But, but it was no worse than the anxiety I had been living with for the several days leading up to the day we would say our 
I do's. And we would get counsel from people in the family and parents of friends that would begin like this. Son, I've been married five or six times. I can tell you all about this marriage thing. <laughs> and listen, that is not to say that you can't learn from a bad example. And sometimes over the course of time, there could be an experience of growth and redemption is, is a real feature of the gospel and God is good and there are second chances and there are fifth chances and there are sixth chances. I'm not setting that aside. But that is not the spirit in which the counsel was being offered. And I'm just thinking, I don't, I don't think that means what you think it means. What James is saying here is that if you know so much, it will bear itself out in the way that you live. If you are so wise, you will, for the sake of our discussion this morning, within your marriage, within your family, but in a broader sense, within all relationships and in all of your life, you will bear the fruit of the Spirit, peace-loving, gentleness, mercy, compliance, grace toward others. You will bear the fruit of Christ's Spirit in you if you truly possess the wisdom you confess. In verse 14, James says, if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't brag and deny the truth. If you are driven by selfishness, if you are driven by pride and envy, you have no right to lay claim to any knowledge whatsoever of the truth of heaven's wisdom. Now, there's a difference between knowing and knowing. This is true of the gospel. There are people in this congregation, perhaps, who could state the gospel plainly. When my, my children were two and three years old, they could tell you the message of the gospel. But there is a difference between being able to parrot the message of the gospel in knowing it in the way my small children did, in knowing it at the level at which perhaps some of you know it, and knowing it in a way that has real bearing on the way we live our life. There is a difference between knowing about the gospel and knowing the God of the gospel. There is a difference in an awareness of the message of Jesus and being born again by the power of the Spirit of God. In the same way, there's a difference between knowing about marriage and family and knowing with the kind of depth that shapes the decisions that we make and the tone of our interactions with those around us. There is a knowing and there is a knowing that moves things in our life. There is a knowledge of marriage and family. And there is the wisdom of God applied in marriage and family. These are vastly different things. If you, if you know so much, I might have said to those terrible counselors in the early days, why aren't you bearing the fruit of such knowledge in your life personally? And men, can I, can I say to you, I think, there, I think there are times when it's a deficit to the ladies of the church that, that my experience is exclusively as a man, like I was born a man, I'll always be a man, I'll die a man. I don't know if y'all knew that or not. <laughs> and then there's sometimes I think when it's a deficit to the men, because I know us, right? And I know that we are envious, and I know that we are prideful people. Men, you know why you won't listen when your wife brings her concerns and burdens? It's because of pride. It's because of pride. And, and, and if you knew so much, which I know is your thought, 
like woman, I know. I know what's going on here. I, can hear, I know. I know because I am us. If you knew so much, you wouldn't keep circling back to this same issue again and again and again. Now, ladies, let me say in fairness to men, we really don't know. We, we really do not know. We don't know what y'all are talking about. So help us. But, but men, listen. It would behoove you to hear the counsel of the one who knows you the best. You don't have it all figured out. And the pattern of your life, the fact that you're continually circling back to this issue is a testament to the absence of awareness and knowledge in that aspect of your life. Look at verse 15. Such wisdom doesn't come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Me, 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 worldly wisdom doesn't come from heaven. It comes from earth. It's unspiritual, and it's demonic. Verse 16, for where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is discord and every kind of evil. Where you are driven by envy and selfish ambition, where pride rules the day, discord and every kind of evil will follow thereafter. There's good news. Where the wisdom of heaven reigns supreme, there is peace-loving, there is gentleness as James describes it. There is a compliant spirit. There is mercy. There are good fruits without favoritism and without hypocrisy. Now, the likelihood is that there are at least a few of you who you just fight all the time. You've been fighting for 10 years, five years. Some of you have been fighting for six months. Some of you have been fighting for longer than that. I don't get it. I don't get it. But I'm just telling you, it doesn't have to be that way. I think there are people who, who sort of aren't satisfied if they aren't fighting or bickering over something. I don't know how you get to a place where you're conditioned to that extent to be drawn to drama. That's not me. It never has been me. I tend to run away from that kind of thing. If that's you, you should repent of that and you should pursue peace in your life. But there's a good many of you who really want to have peace. You want that, the fruit of verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, loving, gentle, compliant, merciful, good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy. You want these to be the characteristic traits of your home. But as it stands, the characteristic marks are discord, disorder, and every kind of evil. What we're being invited to here is, is what on some level we all desire for ourselves. Don't, don't you want a happy marriage? Don't you want a happy family? Don't you want for that? God is inviting us to embrace heavenly wisdom and to enjoy the fruits thereof. But you're going to have to get away from me, me, me. Worldly wisdom that says me, me, me. Worldly wisdom that's driven by selfish ambition. Worldly wis wisdom that's driven by envy and pride will not produce that kind of fruit. It will produce what you've been getting up until this point in your life. But me, me, me will not produce gospel fruit. Heavenly wisdom can, can, will produce, only heavenly wisdom can produce such outcomes. There have been times when in gospel conversation, I, I just get frustrated with the person that I might be sharing with. And I, I might say something to the effect of, why, why don't you just try it God's way? You have sought satisfaction and fulfillment in every way in your life. You have exhausted 
every outlet, every source that might bring you some joy, some happiness. You've done it all to try to be at peace, and it's never worked out for you. Why, why don't you just take a month, one month, give it four weeks, and try to do it God's way, and see if God won't be faithful to answer his promise towards you. He always proves to be true. To some extent, there's a challenge like this in our passage. Why don't, why don't you just take a, 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 a month, take a brief window of time, take long enough to build some healthy patterns and try it God's way. Instead of insisting in envy and in pride, me, 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 take a selfless outlook on your marriage, a selfless outlook on your relationship. It, it is a perspective changer when you begin to see things through the lens of the gospel and separate yourself from this me, 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 earthly wisdom lens or perspective. Let me give you some real world scenarios where envy and pride become an issue. He, he comes home. These are sort of stereotypical, so be gracious with me here. But he comes home and something he expected to be done is not done, and now he's angry. He's not angry because the thing is not done. He's angry because what he believed to be some rest and leisure has now been imposed upon by the need to now do this thing still undone. She comes home, to him coming home, only for him to announce that he's headed to the hunting camp. He's going fishing. He's going to watch the game. He's going to hang out with his friends. She's been there dealing with your bad children all day. She's angry about that. She's not mad because she doesn't want you to hunt or fish or hang out with your friends or watch the game. She's frustrated. She's angry because she believes she deserves the leisure you're about to experience at her cost. He's not really angry about the meal or whatever it is around the house that he perceives to be undone and her responsibility. He's angry because what he believed to be his time of rest and leisure has been imposed upon by your un unwillingness to get it done in the time he was away. Let me give you a, a more personal example. It, it makes me mad to come home after having been gone for a while or working a long week. And for that grass around that house in which able-bodied boys live in has not been mowed, that makes me mad. It, it, it makes me mad because I thought I was going to have the day to rest and recline. And now what I realize is that my family has enjoyed leisure at the expense of my intense labor. Intense labor that will now dominate my Saturday. And it can be quite frustrating. The perspective of the world says I deserve to sit in my spot and watch that ball game on a Saturday morning if the world doesn't turn. But the lens of the gospel sees that situation differently. The lens of, of the gospel calls me away from that worldly frustration that I somehow deserve something in my prideful egotism, in my envy for the leisure someone else is going to enjoy. The lens of the gospel reminds me that we are charged as husbands and as fathers 
to love our wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself for her. I do not deserve the gospel of Jesus Christ. While I was yet in sin, Jesus Christ died for me. And perhaps never more am I like my Savior than when my wife and children enjoy leisure at my intense labor. That's what we do, dads. That's what we do, fathers. We labor and we toil and we spend ourselves and at the cost of our intense labor, our wife might be well provided for, our children might be taken well care of, that we might love them as Christ has loved the church and bring them up in the training and the admonition of Jesus. You see how much in conflict with the wisdom of the world, that little observation, that little scenario is a radical departure from the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world huddles together, talks about how we wish our wives did more around the house, how she did this better, how she did that better. The wisdom of the world gathers together in little groups and talks about how we wish he did more, how he wish, we wish he made more, how we wish he were more sensitive. He were like so-and-so on the Hallmark movie channel or something crazy like that. You guys know TV's not real, right? <laughs> but the wisdom of heaven esteems the other more highly than ourselves and is willing to forego even our own self-perceived rights and privileges in order to be of service to the needs of those God has entrusted to our care. You will never find that in the wisdom of this world's me, me, me mantra. But it is the predominant feature in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how the gospel informs our interaction with those around us. If you'll think for just a moment about your most recent or any conflict that you have experienced within your family, I'll guarantee you envy and pride are not far behind. Now, I started looking initially for this Sunday at verses 13 through 18, and I'm always a little bit reluctant to take a passage that has a broad general application and to draw it down to specific circumstances like this. The reality is James 3 is not about marriage and family. The application is true of marriage and family, and I want you to get that. I always want to be sure to honor the intended meaning of the passage as written by the author himself. But I got to tell you, when I, I began to look down at chapter 4, I was rather encouraged that we are here on the right track. Look at verse 1. What's the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? Let me just put this plainly. Why do you fight? Isn't it because of envy and pride in your heart? Why are you fighting? You, you, you think you're fighting because the shoe was lost this morning before church. But the fact of the matter is, all of that is born out of a heart of envy and of pride. Verse 2 says, and there, there's a series of verses here that aren't directly related to our subject matter this morning. We'll just sort of glance over them. You desire and don't have. You murder and covet and can't obtain. You fight in war. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. Even your prayer life is impacted by the presence of envy and pride in your heart. God, give me. God, give me. God, do for me. 
when we ought rather to embrace the prayer life and ministry of Jesus who said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done, Father. In verse 4, James goes on, adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. I'm reluctant to point to this reality because there are always people who sort of take it and run with it in excessive ways that are shameful. But as a follower of Jesus, in an increasingly debauched culture, you better get at ease with the principle of this verse. To be in harmony with, to be a friend of God is to be in opposition to to be an opponent of the world that exists around us. And this is all the more true with every day that passes. Verse 5, don't you think it's, or do you think rather it's without reason? The scripture says that the spirit who lives in us yearns jealously. In other words, in the same way that your heart yearns for the things of this world, so the spirit of God that abides within the heart of the believer yearns for our undivided allegiance, for our absolute attention. The spirit yearns jealously for the heart that yearns jealously for the things of this world. Verse 6, this is what I want us to really see here. This is the principle that sort of binds our passage together. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is, this is a principle that is relevant in every corner of our life. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The idea of God resisting the proud is about God actively fighting against the proud. If you are a proud person, God is actively fighting against you. In fact, there's, there's something linguistically that draws all of the passage together. In verse 1 of chapter 4, why do you fight? You fight because of envy in your heart. Then you come to verse 6 and we find the remedy, the solution to conflict, this observation from Proverbs chapter 3, God resists the proud. You fight because of envy in your heart, but you need to know that because of pride and envy in your heart, God is actively fighting against you. If you're a proud person, if you in your pride will not hear good counsel, if you in your pride will quench the work of God's spirit, if you in your pride will not hear your spouse, if you in your pride will not hear your children, if you in your pride will not hear the word of God, if you in your pride won't listen to a quickened conscience, you need to know that God is actively fighting against you. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is a powerful thing. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. I, I went home for lunch the other day, and Brandy was there. That's not often the case, and we were just sitting and chatting, and I, I shared with her that I wanted at some point in this sermon series to bring a few of our pastors to the platform and our wives to talk about what it looks like from the perspective of men and women to love your wife as Christ loved the church and for wives to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. She had an anxiety attack. 
with me just telling her that. So there's not much likelihood you're going to hear it all from my wife during the course of this series of, of sermons. By the way, the last sermon in this series was on anxiety. I would just point out that most of the anxiety experienced in our culture is produced by the very sin of envy, which we're discussing in this morning's message. In any event, I wanted to do that. I was sharing that with her because... I, I want our people to see that the reason that I can come up with such pointed examples of the way pride and envy can impact your marriage and family is because I'm alive. I, like, I, I don't have a window into your life experience. I just know that your life experience is like my life experience. It's, it's not perfection at the Stevens house or the McClellan house or the Ford house or the Peavy house. We're the same mess all of you are. And I, I want you to understand that the characteristic trait of the Christian marriage and family is not perfection. It's repentance. So you can't win this battle. Listen, you, you can't do what I've asked you to do in the time that we have together. Before the day's over... You're going to be driven by envy, and you're going to struggle with pride. And on Monday, you're going to be driven by envy, and you're going to struggle with pride. The difference is, as followers of Jesus, we take the posture of repentance. We are aware of our pridefulness. We are aware of our selfishness. We are aware of the envious nature of our hearts. And we seek, by the power of the Spirit, to war against that. It gives us the ability to see when we've behaved foolishly, and to circle back and to seek reconciliation, to apologize for some foolish word, for behavior that's unbecoming of a follower of Jesus. It's interesting that in this identity-crazed culture in which we live, there are no self-identified fools. But there's no shortage of them. And if we're not careful, even as followers of Jesus, when driven by envy and pride, we can play the fool within our own marriage and family. When you do, you've got to own it. You've got to know that you are, in your heart of hearts, an envious person. You've got to know that in your heart of hearts, you are a prideful person. Reflecting back on that exchange, that encounter, when your tone wasn't what it ought to have been. How many times have you heard that, gentlemen? Just got to own it. Just got to own it. And, and I, I, I find that people are sort of warm to that. The idea of owning responsibility, real repentance, is confession of our sin, not just to the God who gives us grace through the blood of Jesus Christ, but confession of our sin to the person against we have offended. And to pursue that in humility. You'll be received well in all likelihood which is at least in part a feature of the promise or principle of Proverbs 3:34 God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble you can't do it you can't our only hope is the indwelling presence and the power of God's holy spirit a presence and a power available to all who believe on Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin Believing the message of Christ's death on the cross in our place, shedding his blood, that our sin 
might be atoned for, rising in resurrection, securing for us victory eternally. I was sharing the gospel with a gentleman this week, and he responded in a way that I'm not sure I'd ever been responded to in sharing the gospel. He said, God is all-powerful? Sure, he is. God is all-powerful. And why wouldn't he just forgive sin? Why would he kill his only son, his righteous son? He wasn't as far from the truth of the gospel as he thought he was. That's what grace looks like. My response to him was, God will not violate his holy character in order to overlook or forgive your sin. The penalty for your sin must be paid. That's the function the death of Jesus on the, cro- on the cross plays for you. Jesus died embracing the full debt, the full penalty for your sin and for my sin that we might look upon him with eyes of faith and receive the forgiveness of our sin and the gift of his righteousness accredited to our account. You must, you must, you must. Some of you are fighting it out as husbands and wives. Some of you are squabbling as families and you've tried the wisdom of this world. Every time you run into this impasse, this me, 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 when every party at the table is saying me, 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 there'll never be any negotiation whatsoever. You'll never move beyond the me, 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 wisdom of this world. Why don't you try it the Jesus way and esteem others more highly than yourself? Acknowledge, confess, and repent of the envy and the pride in your heart. Test him, try him, and in time, You'll prove him to be faithful and true. Far too often, the church of Jesus Christ finds its information in the wisdom of this world. When the message of the gospel has afforded us all we need in Christ to walk with harmony and love and care for one another. Randy and I went in 18 years ago, 19 years ago, nearly absolutely scared to death. From time to time, we'll talk about what that was like, the early days, and wondering, will we make it? Can we make it? And I, don't, I, I don't want anybody to be discouraged by this or take this the wrong way, but it ain't that hard, right? Like, there's two sinners. You just be repentant. Sometimes I foul it up. She would probably argue often. And occasionally she will. And then you just repent and you just keep loving one another and, and you forgive because Christ has forgiven you and you just keep loving one another and you just press on. I, I, I talk to people from time to time at the, at the place of, of completely going all in on the wisdom of this world. I'm out. I'm done. I'm out. Me, 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 me. I'm just out. And I would just challenge you this morning to really count the cost of those decisions. The impact that that stands to have in your life. What what is that going to improve? Adopting the wisdom of this world, going the way of this world, it will not benefit you. How, How incongruous the idea of divorcing or jumping ship on a on a spouse that we expect to spend eternity with in heaven. It's just inconsistent with the Christian experience. Living at disharmony with extended members of the family, 
for long periods of time. Do you see how out of joint that is with walking with Jesus, who's called us to sacrifice of ourselves, even after his example? Listen, I know there are all kinds of examples. The, the reason pastors don't preach marriage and families series of sermons is because there's always exceptions and examples of ways things worked out in, in different ways. And the foolishness of this world is to see the whole world through the lens of our own personal experience. Your experience, nor my experience, is the experience of every person around us. I'm simply trying to say to you earnestly this morning that God's way is always the best way. Trust him and try him. And in time, you'll prove him to be true. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, I pray that God, what I feel in my very heart of hearts with regards to these issues, that you would in ways that by far exceed the quality of the sermon, put this burning desire to see marriages and families thrive under the power of your Holy Spirit in the hearts of every person here. God, I, I pray that today, husbands and wives would be reconciled, children and parents, neighbors and friends and relatives, God. I, I pray that the gospel would shape and transform not only our heart, but every part of our life. God, only you can do that. In a world that is marked by every kind of evil and every kind of discord and disunity. Make of us a people of peace. We ask it in the power of Jesus' name. Amen.